So here is the mission of the Messiah continuing in Matthew 9. I'm sorry, we're Matthew 10, where uh, Jesus uh, begins to speak to them. And he develops something of a model uh, for what he wants his church or his disciples to do and to be. If you remember last week, he sent out his um, 12 disciples. He at least commissioned them. He named them. We read last week where he named all 12 and he set them aside and he called them apostles. And other places in the Gospels, we're told that he gave them authority, unique authority as apostles. And here is the very beginning of them actually being commissioned as apostles in Matthew 10, 5, in which they actually move to begin to do the things that God has called them to do. And the description here is remarkable. It goes like this, Matthew 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And when the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if the house is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What they're doing is very important that Jesus would actually end with those words and warning. What they are explaining, what they are proclaiming, the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, ends with a warning that When they leave a town that has rejected the Lord, the very dust of their feet should stay in that town. As a witness, it would be to the end of creation. In the prophets, when the day of the Lord comes, it's often described in a moment as those who are there and are on the wrong side will say and call out for the heavens to cover them. Or in the prophets, when the day of the Lord comes, it says that heaven and earth bear witness to everything that we have done in this world. Personifying, to bring in a metaphor, to say, what if the hills had eyes? What if we say the walls could talk? Wouldn't it be great to be a fly on that wall, we say. That at the end of all creation, the image is that even the dust that held and supported the feet that bore the goodness and glorious grace of this gospel will be present 
to witness to all who've rejected Jesus Christ. To say, no, this soil was here. They saw the feet of those who had the gospel. They know that you rejected Jesus. You rejected the Lord of glory. And even the dust itself would call out as a witness against you. That's the gravity of what Jesus has called his apostles to do. To go out and witness this way. He does it in a remarkable way. The ministry of Jesus Christ as the Messiah is here now multiplied and that modeled and multiplied for his apostles, his 12 disciples. Remembering from before, just before this, he sees a multitude of people and there's a tremendous problem that he sees they are sheep without a shepherd. They are harassed and helpless on every side. They're sheep that have no leader. And here is Jesus with all power and glory as God, but limited as being man. And not able to do what otherwise he could do. That he does this on purpose. Redemption was through the incarnation of the Son. So that we would model after him. That he would actually rely on 12 other men to delegate in some way his authority to them to go and multiply and do the ministry for the multitudes that one man, limited as he might be, cannot accomplish. So the solution was to delegate. And he names his 12 apostles. And here it says he gave them all authority to continue his ministry. To actually copy the Messiah. Just consider that for a moment. Everything Jesus did, some of it uniquely is him as God and doing something only he should be doing for redemption. But in this particular case, as far as ministering to other people and speaking in word and deed, the kingdom of heaven. He has given remarkable authority to these men to do this thing. And we're told that they went around doing all these miracles, healing the sick and lifting people of every affliction. We know the problem of a child without a mother or father. That we need, we absolutely need models in our life. We need those to give us an example. If you've ever had success at any job ever, where anyone actually ever paid you any money to do anything, at some point, there was somebody saying, this is how you do it. At some point, somebody had to say, this is how we use a cash register. This is how we wash a table. At some point, somebody has to teach you. We need fathers, we need mothers, we need teachers. Think of the Olympics. What is it now with all these amazing athletes doing their business, doing their work, things they've trained for their whole life to be the best of the best, potentially even in the course of all of human history and the way athletics has developed even throughout history, that these are literally the best that's ever done this ever. And none of them got there without a coach. Not one of them picked up a basketball, a tennis racket, kicked a soccer ball, learned how to wrestle, jiu-jitsu, rugby, any of these sports. No one just picked that up and went to the Olympics. They all had a coach. They had an example. They had a model. 
in that amazing type of athleticism. It's an extensive, extensive version of athletic discipline. That if they are off, if, if their coach is not a really good coach, one of the best coaches, they can't even compete at this level. If they're using some type of muscle, for example, that they use their bicep in some type of sport heavily, and their coach is not trained and dialed in exactly how to do this the right way, there is no way they're going to get to the Olympics because of pushing their bodies to such an extent they're never going to go without injuries. The body can't take it that way. So without a good model to know when to train hard, when to train easy, when to sleep deeply, when to do cardio, when to do calisthenics, when to do plyometrics, when to eat a lot, when to eat a little, they have the best coaches telling them exactly what to do when. And when they overwork their biceps, they train their triceps. Always staying away to be balanced, to stay away from injury or harm. That you could even try to get to that level of the Olympics. It is impossible without a team of trainers looking at you and explaining things to you and modeling all sorts of disciplines for you. And now we have this man, Jesus, who came into the world and he did remarkable things. And then he went to these 12 and said, now you do this. Just, just think that through. He went to them and said, now you do this. We need an instructor. We need a model. And so it is a paradigm. And I want to, this morning, lay out what a paradigm would be. A paradigm or something of a perspective, a set of ideas, a standard. I want us to consider... What is the paradigm for your ministry individually or our ministry corporately as a church? What should we be doing? Here is Jesus in the beginning of the Gospels actually for the first time delegating some level of stewardship and authority to sinful men. And that's where you and I, our ears perk up and we're just like, well, hey, that's me. I do that. I'm one of those people. Average, they're fishermen. They're tax collectors and zealots. That's all they are. They have no pedigree. They have no resume, except that they are sinners like the first man, Adam. And we cannot read past this passage without realizing right now that God has given them something remarkable. And you should remember that you are no different than them as far as your human nature. He delegated them particularly to 12, the 12 apostles. And here is some uniqueness. That if we take this paradigm or example and absolutize it, we fall into a lot of danger. We need someone to coach us, to show us this is what's good now, this is not good later. For example, if you're going to run the 100 meter, you might not want to eat a big meal the day before. Now, I have an amazing story about my brother, and it just popped in my head now. And usually when things like that happen, I don't do it. So I don't think I'm going to. I don't think I'm going to. My brother was doing the high jump. He was going to Whippeals. And he ate so much cookie dough the day before. Like raw cookie dough. He needed a coach so bad. I mean, I was literally by his bedside the next day in the hospital thinking he had pancreatitis or something. And he had another problem. A problem that happens when you eat a lot of cookie dough. But right before Whippeals, high jump. How high are you going to jump? Either way, either way, 
we need someone to say, this is for now, this is not for now. This is what you need to do. This is how New Life Presbyterian Church in the 21st century in the east suburbs of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania should function. We need a coach. We can't make this up on our own. He delegated to the 12. It says, back then, he said this particularly to them. Go nowhere. Nowhere, not even among uh, the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Only go to the lost sheep of Israel. He takes 12 men and he says, now only go to the Jewish people. Only go to them. And he says back then that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. You could touch it. You could reach it. As far as Christ was in your vicinity, you have the king. The domain of the kingdom of God has come to you. And then what always in the gospels is matched with that is a demonstration of the power of the kingdom of God. Therefore, tell them the kingdom of God is at hand. And now, right after that he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. What gives them the authority to do these kind of things? He says clearly, you receive without paying, so give without pay. There's nothing you earn to get this kind of authority. Jesus just simply said, I'll give you some of my authority. Go ahead. Go ahead and do some of the things that I was doing. Then what was happening was a short-term mission trip. He says particularly, acquire no gold, silver, or copper. Take no bag, no two tunics or sandals or staff. Don't take extra. Don't be weighed down with the things you don't necessarily need at this moment. We are doing a short-term mission trip. We are going through the, the Israeli people, Israeli people in Galilee, the upper northern region. Right now, I'm here. I won't be here much longer. We need to do this now. Don't waste your time talking or greeting. Some, someone comes to Jesus and says, let me bury my father first, then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no, I'm leaving now. Come with me now. Right? It's very quick. Everything's very time sensitive. Then the gospel extended also through households. So they were told to model their ministry based on households. What's so funny in our modern age, we don't do that. We have, we have adult ministry and senior ministry. We have youth ministry. We have people who are thinking about maybe being youth eventually someday ministry. We have those who are 21 and then not to be infused with those who are the 22 group. And we have all of these divided ministries. But the reality is there is a natural law that God has made a man and a woman and when they come together they make a child and that makes a family. Work through the highways that God has created the world by. And that is the family. They say, studies show, if the, if the wife comes to Christ, a, 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 a fraction of the house, potentially the kids and maybe even the husband might, might choose to bow the knee to Jesus. They say if the husband comes to Christ, there is usually a 70 or higher percent of the household comes to Jesus. It's just the wiring of the family. They fun that is the way God has wired humanity. It is, a, it is an anthropological truth that the world works this way. And everything outside of Christ is trying to divide the family and work against the family. And here they go explicitly to the households. And go specifically to the house. And if the house is worthy, speak peace to the house. That is to say, they comprehend the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus Christ is Lord. And they say, Amen. I bow my knee to Jesus. And then they respond and say, You have peace. You are not an enemy of the ruler of the cosmos. Good for you. 
Now, if they do not respond positively, some houses are not worthy of peace. And he says, if they're not worthy, let your peace return to you. If they do not receive you, if they do not listen to your words, then shake off the dust from your feet and leave that house. It will be worse for them than for those in Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. Because they are going to the Jews. Those who know the word of God. With greater knowledge comes greater culpability. That yes, Sodom and Gomorrah was culpable in their sin. But oh my gosh, how hot, how heavy, how dangerous it must be for this word to go to this generation of those who have the word of God and know all the beauties and glories of God and openly reject him in that knowledge. Don't, the warning is don't even let the dust be associated with your feet. It is so bad for them to reject God in his glorious grace. So to be worthy of that peace is to receive it with faith. If you accept Jesus as the Messiah, peace, it has fallen upon you. It is not, it is not a um, cordial greeting of saying, oh, I, I hope you're happy, or peace, goodbye. It's a statement. These apostles have been given authority, matched with miracles and signs and wonders. And when they come to your house and say, you have peace, that means you literally are saved. You are in a place where the ruler of the world has you on the inside of his walls. You are in his kingdom, not outside his kingdom. If you are outside his kingdom, you are opposed to him. You are an enemy of Jesus Christ. You are an enemy of the Lord of glory. And in Revelation, he will get on a horse and it will not go well. But right now is the option, the decision. And they go out and that is what the scriptures call preaching the gospel. That's the gospel of the kingdom. It's not necessarily, would you maybe consider accepting Jesus? It is, he is your Lord. Now you have some decisions to make. That's the gospel. And what results from that is tremendous peace. That is, he is your Lord. But what, who is he as the Lord? He is the one who loves he has compassion. He cares for all these people. The gospel of Luke. Now to make a paradigm, there has to be multiple angles to this. And so what we're trying to do is see, what is it that we should be doing as a church? Here is the gospel of Luke. You can't read Matthew 10 without reading Luke 10. You can't read Matthew 10 without reading Luke 10. Luke, the gospel, unlike Matthew, Matthew was written to Jewish people. It was written for Jewish people. Many people suspect that Matthew was actually originally written in Hebrew. Maybe not. But either way, the whole point of the gospel is that it's going to Jewish people. It's written about all the things that Jewish people would care about. The gospel of Luke is uniquely written and geared for and, and hewn and chiseled and, and crafted in such a way that it is written for Gentiles. It is written to go outside of the Jewish community. And Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So actually, to explain something, when we have our Bibles, the Gospel of Luke, and then you flip over to the book of Acts, between that you have this thing called John. But in reality, the way the manuscripts are, what's actually written is that Luke and Acts were one thing. One complete book. One complete body of literature. And so in Luke 9 is Luke's version of Jesus calling 
the twelve apostles. And it says he gave them power and authority over demons and disease. Again, reiterating, no staff, no bag, no silver. And then in Luke 9.51, something happens. There's an amazing transition. And we have to catch this transition to see who we are as a church. In Luke 9.51, it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That is, the way the language is there is that he was determined. Maybe you have this streak in you. I know I do at various levels. If I determine to do something, I'm going to do it. Like, if I really believe it's what God's called me to do, I'm just going to do it. And it's going to be very hard for anyone to stop me. Jesus had that. There was a point where Jesus said, I need to go to Jerusalem. And from that point in the gospel to the end, he's going to Jerusalem. Straight down. He's going now. No one will pause him. No more blind people. No more leper people. No more paralyzed people. I'm going to Jerusalem. Of course, on his way, he does something remarkable. And this is where you compare Luke 10 to Matthew 10. In Luke 10, it says... After this, the Lord appointed 70 or 72, some translations have, others. Now that's interesting. So he does all his miracles. He takes 12 and says, listen, there's a lot of sheep and no shepherds. Here's 12. Get at it. You have authority. Go. And then as he's going from Upper Galilee, which is full of Jewish people, trying to get down south to Jerusalem, which of course is very Jewish, he has to pass through a town called Samaria. And Samaria is not entirely all Jewish. It's a mix of Jewish and Gentile people raced together. And they didn't like each other, of course. And so when Jesus determined to go to Jerusalem, all those in Samaria, he has to pass through to get there, don't like him, they reject him, they don't really hear his gospel well. But before he goes through Samaria, he does this. He takes 70 people and he tells them to do the same exact thing that the 12 were doing. So it's not even just an apostolic thing. He takes the 70 and he tells them to go on ahead of him, two by two. That is, what's going to happen soon is going to be judgment. Because in Deuteronomy, you have to have two witnesses to hold a judgment. If they're going to mark the dust off their feet that you've rejected the Messiah, it will be a witness of two people that you have rejected the Messiah, that those two would actually stand against you in the day of the final judgment to say, yes, I was there. He heard of Christ. He knew of Jesus. And he said, no. They go two by two. Every town, every place where he himself was about to go. As Jesus is traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem, he passes through Samaria. And everywhere through Samaria he's about ready to go, he sends these 70 out to just go and do the exact same thing. Which is what? To proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Why? Because in Luke 10, the same reason it led to the 12 leads to the 70. He says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. The harvest is so plentiful, I need 12. The harvest is so plentiful, I need 70 now. Do you see what's happening as far as this paradigm is going from Jesus alone to the 12, now opening up to even the 70? And they're all going out doing the same thing, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Even after uh, commissioning the 12 to do their work, he commissions the 70 to demonstrate the power of the kingdom that is near. He tells the 70, who are not apostles, to heal the sick, say that the kingdom of God has come near. Again, the spoken word of the gospel and the power demonstration of the gospel coming together. And also, he says, even after commissioning the 12, he commissions the 70 to a short-term trip. 
He said to them in Luke 10, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Take no money, no knapsack, no sandals, and don't take time greeting people on the road. Jewish custom for greeting people was very long. He said, you don't have time for that. No small talk. So exactly the same thing he said to the 12. No extra sandals, no extra tunics. Don't take a money bag. Get working because pretty soon I'm going down to Jerusalem. And then he takes to the 70 and he says, by the way, don't take extra money. Don't take extra sandals. Don't take extra staff. I'm going through Galilee because I'm trying to get to Jerusalem. Do not waste your time with those things. Go out there and proclaim the gospel. I'm only going to be in this area for a short time. And so they go. And he even extends through households. These 70, like the 12, are told to go to the households. Households that are worthy of peace. It says this, he says this to the 70. If the son, if there is a son of peace there in that house, let your peace rest upon him. And if not, let your peace return. Same exact thing. If they reject me, your words, if they reject you and your words, they're rejecting me. If they're rejecting me, they do not have peace with the king of glory. Therefore, you cannot speak peace to them. Even if you would try to bring peace to them, it will come back to you. There is no peace on that home. So just like the 70, just like the 12 were called to do this judgment from household to household, so are the 70. And some are unworthy of peace. And he says the exact same thing again. It will be more bearable, he says to the 70, on on that day for Sodom than for this town. And these aren't even the apostles. So what is the paradigm? This is the most beautiful thing to bring this out in scripture and then put ourselves in the middle of it. And closing on this, look at this category. The paradigm starts with Jesus, 12, and 70. There's Jesus' initial foundation for the kingdom to go to all the Jews with 12, and then to extend, then to expand to the 70, to not just go to the Jews. He told the 12, do not go to Samaria. He told to the 70, go to Samaria. It's extending from the center of the Jewish population out to these quasi-Jewish, potentially half-Gentile population of Samaria, so that it would extend all the way to the world of all the Gentiles, but to the Jews first. Look at this. The number 70. Why did Jesus pick 70? Why didn't he pick 50? Why didn't he pick 86? Why didn't he pick 103? Why did he say, I'm going to take 12, which is kind of an important number in the Bible, and then he says, now I'm going to take 70. The image of 70 is filling. 7 is a perfect number in Scripture. 70 is filling out that perfection. 70 is this. Exodus 1. 1 to 5. It says the sons of Israel came down into Egypt. They entered into the land of Egypt. And who entered? Well, it says there were 12 of the initial tribes of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Natali, Asher, and Gad. Alright? They all go in. And then it says at the end in Exodus 1, 5, the descendants of Jacob were 70. So Israel started with 12 and they grew. Their children had children. And the whole household eventually became what once was originally 12, 70. Deuteronomy 10, it says, Your fathers went down to Egypt and became 70 persons. When they came out of Egypt, Deuteronomy 10, 22 says, God made them as numerous as, you ready? The stars. One. Then it moves to 12. That 12 moves to 70. 
that 70 moves to the promise given to Abraham from the promise of old is that your children's children will be as numerous as the stars. And so here is Jesus. Jesus Christ. What is his ministry? In Genesis 10, there are 70 nations listed. It's not to say it goes to try to list all the nations of the world. And many secularists or historians will say, they'll look at Genesis 10, the table of nations, and they'll be like, well, that, that couldn't be all the nations of the world. It doesn't make sense. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, no, no. It's not saying there's only 70 nations in the whole world. Genesis 10 is saying there's 70 nations listed because the Hebrew concept of the number 70 is the fullness. It's saying I'm not listing all like 102 nations of the world. I'm going to give you a 70 to say this is the fullness of generally what the world is. And so when Jesus is trying to reach the Jews, then therefore find to reach all the Gentiles, he picks the number 70, which represents the table of nations, the table of the Hagoim, which is all the Gentiles. And so the 70 don't go to the Jews, they go to the Gentiles in Samaria. All this is important to say that Jesus' kingdom is expanding exactly the way it was intended to go. This is the good example that is given to us, that it is 70 to fulfill, starting with 12. And all this is a trickling down of Jesus' own authority. And that's all just biblical theology, everything I gave you. Now the question is, what does it mean? What does it matter? How does that affect me? What am I to do? It's his unique model for the mission. This is the mission of our Messiah. What should we be doing as a church? Well, it's very simple. Find out where we are in the story and pick up the baton and keep running. Realizing that the end is nothing more than the stars. See, Jesus' unique mission is that for us, it is the long haul. We're supposed to be good with our time and resources, but now we settle in. This, this church makes deep roots. At first, they were told, don't go here. Don't get gold. Don't save your money. Don't get extra belts or tunics or shoes or sandals. Here, we're in it for the long haul. We understand what we're about. What we are to do is to build a church that has roots that go so deep into the culture, so deep into the world. It's the exact opposite of what is done here. That we are here for the stars. We are here to make institutions. We are here to make a Christian witness that will outlast our lives by many generations. Because we see what he was doing with the one, the twelve, the seventy. And how that wraps up into everything that God is doing at the end of the age. Do you realize in Revelation, there is the vision of the 144,000. Which actually happens to be a derivative of twelve. Isn't that interesting? We're going for that number. So we have to model a ministry for the long haul. To actually reach the world for Christ. Closing on this, paradigm is in that pyramid. Looking in that bulletin, you might have seen that pyramid. And this is the question, where, where can we see it in our lives? I encourage you to look at that. It was um, actually created by a man by the name of Vern Poitras. So I want to say that I didn't make that. This is how we function as a church. This is called the mission of the Messiah. Messiah. 
To be a Messiah means you're a Mashiach. That means you're anointed. That means you're smeared with oil. Jesus is the Messiah. In Israel, there are only three types of people usually that were smeared. Prophets, priests, and kings. And Jesus is the Messiah. The anointed leaders in Israel were prophets, priests, and kings. They had a unique oil that no one else could make. And God clearly said in Exodus 30, don't you let anyone get this oil unless they are special. Unless they are going to be a prophet, priest, or king. Don't give them this oil. It doesn't go out to everybody. And usually what always accompanied this oil was the actual substance behind the symbol of the oil, which is the empowering of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work of a prophet, or accomplish the work of a priest, or accomplish the work of a king. And they needed to be anointed, to be able to steer the nation aright. They needed the Holy Spirit in great ways. In 1, Kings, uh, 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed and we're told the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him in that moment. Oil is poured out over his head and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. And he does amazing things as a king. And here is Jesus. When we say the mission of the Messiah, we're saying is Jesus Christ, the anointed of God, the actual one who is both prophet, priest, and king, all wrapped in one, that he is prophet, and that not only does he just speak the words of God to us, he is the Logos, we are told. He is the word of God incarnate. He is the representation exactly of who Jesus is, who God is through Jesus Christ. And he is a priest in the fact that he not only offers, only just a sacrifice as the priest did, but he offers his own body for us. That is, he took us into the holy place that you and I, in our sins, are actually able to approach God because of Jesus as the priest and Jesus as the king. That is, he rules, absolute rule with absolute wisdom, given the spirit of perfect wisdom to rule a kingdom that actually has these commands, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so how do we model ministry? Do you see yourself in these categories? What is your prophetic life? What is your priestly life? What is your kingly life? You see at the top, there is in that paradigm, Jesus with absolute authority. The apostles with unique authority. Coming down to the church and the officers. But then to every Christian, that you should consider your life as modeling this ministry. Are you actually able to be prophetic? In the general sense, do you speak the word of God to others? If you accurately are speaking of God, in the sense that you are speaking truth, you are prophetic. And you are called to be prophetic. In Numbers 11, Moses was trying to lead a whole nation. And there's a lot of them. And it wasn't going well. And he said, why do I have to have the burden of all these people? And God told him, go ahead and make 70 elders. And he said, I'll take some of the spirit that is on you and I'll put it on them. You have to realize this is exactly what Jesus wants of us. He wants you to be able to speak with an authoritative word for someone to say, this is who God is. 
He wants you to be a priest, to be able to actually offer service to others and charity and justice and to actually usher those into the presence of God. Be priest-like. Bring those to the glory of God. Is your life like that? Kingly, to rule and govern, to be disciplined in your life and your habits, to model the wisdom of God in all of your doings, being steward of everything that he's given you, with all authority that he's ever given you, delegated in your life. Do you manage that well to the glory of Christ? If we do that individually, do that corporately as a church, this is exactly what he's called us to do. This is the paradigm to follow. For he is our prophet, priest, and king. And we are all anointed, all smeared with the Holy Spirit. So let us pray. Father, we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us, Lord. Lord, take these humble words, this simple teaching, which was much more of a teaching than a sermon, Lord, that this would be definitive on how we see ourselves. That we would see one another this way and we would understand this church to be this way. The Lord, you have given us these gifts of being a prophet, priest, and king. Lord, we pray that you would make us that. Lord, we pray that you would give us the ability to speak your word in truth and love, to serve those, to bring others in ushering them into the presence of God. And Lord, that you would give us this self-government, that we would rule all our lives under your stewardship, Lord, that we would have everything under your throne. Lord, we trust you to do that now in us, through us. Today, tomorrow, as we walk into and mature into these offices that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.